You're listening to the Wallsworth Yearbooks Podcast Network. I just want to introduce our listeners to the yearbook whisperer, Bruce Watterson. Bruce Watterson is like my yearbook hero. Actually, he's probably my everyday hero. If my wife oh. were here, she'd tell you that. Um, and I think that the two of them are better friends than than Bruce and I. Um, I, I well, I doubt that. But um, I, I just think he's amazing. And Bruce, can we go back a little bit and find out a little bit about Bruce Watterson and why he's considered the yearbook whisperer? Well, interestingly, I started the way many advisors start in the field. Uh, I returned to my high school I graduated from in a rural community in the Delta, Mississippi Delta. And there were class senior classes of 40 to 60 people. And it was a small environment, but we didn't necessarily think in a small, confined way. And when I returned, I established an art department, a journalism department. We, we took on the notion that, heck, a yearbook doesn't have to be seven and three quarter by ten and a half right. inches. It can be nine by twelve. Uh, it can be a compendium of all sorts of content and not the traditional um, five or six sections normally uh, included in a yearbook. Mm -hmm. And we had a good time with it. I I pulled out one this morning and just went back through the pages of that book. And all I could think about was the kind of investment in time that it took to create it and the kind of students who made it come alive. You know, it's amazing to me. Today, 44 years later, um, we have a lot of content out there. And that content is unlimited. Oh, yeah. And it's largely free. But nothing compares, in my estimate, to holding this yearbook from 44 years ago that contains all of these images and all of these quips and stories and one-liners that the students have put together and done it in a, a really interesting way. It command, it, it still kind of commands my attention, and it's the experience overall that's enjoyable. And maybe if a yearbook is nothing more than that, it's a powerful tool. I just don't see it ever not being an important tool. Oh, that's for sure. Um, Last year, 2018, the stories that were told are some of the finest stories in my eyes. And some of the stories that were missed by the national news media and the world news media were told better by high school students. And I'm talking about the the, re, the walks for life and oh, sure. the issues that that students all of a sudden just took on as a as a mission, and their storytelling in that is amazing. Well, you have to take for granted the the notion, or not take for granted the notion that kids are activists, right? 
you know, all we have to do is think of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and the incident that happened there and the wonderful voice of the student journalist, both in newspaper and yearbook, right? who represented that student body in such a clear and concise way. Oh my gosh, you talk about students who stuck to their guns and students who embodied a sort of never give up mentality. That's what's required to produce a publication. Exactly. And they were the embodiment of that. Go back 44 years and what have we got? I can remember at Columbia University, a lot of activists, a lot of picketing, a lot of sign uh, holding and waving. And, you know, the voices were heard at that time. Right. And they were loud and they resonated. And that's what we're seeing again in our culture. So something old is new again. That's right. You know, it's as simple as that. Do you think that we, since we've started calling it storytelling, people are understanding it better than when we were giving them all the 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 yearbook slang term, you know, not slang, but theme and theme mm-hmm. copy. But once we, I noticed that once we started saying storytelling or once I started saying storytelling, it seemed to sink in. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. You know, we should be enablers of that. Right. We should. It's not that we need to be AP English scholars or AP English instructors. Rather, that we should be people who enable students to see stories and plenty of them and to think about what kind of stories really endure? You know, my concern is we tend to go back as a culture of your book and look at previous books or assume that all of the givens must be included year after year after year. And they tend to take on a real sameness. And so what's going to make the stories we do include exceptional stories, you know, not homogeneous, but exceptional. Uh, I'm, I'm bothered by the fact that everything in your book it can easily be monolithic, mm-hmm. can easily be expected. And your book should never be a one-size-fits-all. No. You know, it just shouldn't. I'm all these years I've done this, and, and God knows I'm old. You know, this is <laughs> 44 plus years of doing You this. are not old. Well, the yearbooks are good books to me if they're different. If they embrace a different look, if they embrace a different voice or quality, some uniqueness, because... Um, your school year is unique. You know, I know that there are people who don't see that. You know, there is a start a school mentality. There is a lingering um, month by month rote quality about it. But we're living in a time where there are so many facets to storytelling. 
Exactly. You know, come on. They they can add video. They can add. They can. They, yeah. They can. There's so many ways to talk to people now. Podcasts. I mean, yeah. everything. No one should underestimate the power that a staff has to tell a good story. You know, it's a it's a print vehicle, and everything about it to me is a. It should connote quality from the paper it's printed on, um, the quality of the photographs that are taken and, and chosen to be included, the allure of the writing. To me, the whole experience is tactile. And it's setting an expectation when you pass them out that not just the students into whose hands you're placing a hard copy, but also that greater audience. You know, think of how many times we've seen your books and ogled over them and thought, whoa, the creativity here is just inspiring. Well, their audience, the staff's audience, is so much greater than the student's. You know, it's greater than those subscribers, the people who pay that money. Sure. It's their parents. It's those, I call them pass-along readers. The you know, high school or the college roommate. That's it. Yeah. That's it. You know, it's just more than that. And what I've noticed this summer is people are waking up. People are becoming keenly aware of that aspect of yearbooking. You know, advisors, particularly, and I'm saying, especially those advisors who are buying into the craft, get it that they are referees sometimes. You know, what would you recommend for 2019 storytelling? What, what would you think, uh, um, what are you going to tell? these new EICs and these new staffs that are basically starting school across the country, what would you tell them about how to continue this great storytelling? That's a great question. I, I personally am a yearbook junkie. If a staff produces a good book, uh, I'm going to want to look at it. I'm going to want to hold it. I'm going to want to read it. But lots of books are just not compelling to me. They don't draw me in. They don't, uh, the year is not mysterious to me. Uh, I, I want to know what's just around the corner. What's different? What's left to reveal about our students in our school in this particular year? And I think a key to that is going back and thinking through what content in that book possibly needs to go away and purge that content and literally get out a, a pad of paper, draw a line down the middle like a lawyer does, and put the key, the, the essentials that need to be kept and the things that can go in terms of hackneyed storytelling and then revisit that as the year goes on. You know, if, if, um, 
if a yearbook's really about a reader, really about a student, then why are we not getting what that reader is thinking? Why are we not getting to that? Why are we not telling us what students are worried about or want to learn more about or want to know more about? And in my estimate, um, I want the yearbook to be a kind of getaway. I want to open it up and I want to dive into it. And I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm, it's troubling to me online I get my fix very quickly online <laughs> with whatever the content is, and then I move on. Right. But in a yearbook, it's a story. I tend to page through it. I'm at my own pace, and then I set it down, and I return to it, and I continue that journey. Well, I don't know that there's a prescribed formula for what that story content should be, but all these years, one of the things I've tried to do is simply cultivate curiosity in students. You know, what do we, what do we not know? You know, I can sit down with a couple of editors in a forum and I can talk in conversation and I can come away with knowing plenty about them that has nothing whatsoever to do with their job roles as editors. Why are we not getting to that level of conversational quality in our books? We should easily be able to do that. You know, no more question and answers of an expected sort, but rather questions and answers about important issues to students. And I call it hitting the 10 out of 10. Mm -hmm. You know, when are we going to get to 10.0? I get it. There's not been a book that's necessarily a perfect 10. But I embrace the notion that one of these days we're going to have such great storytelling that we're going to get there. We're going to have a 9.9999. We're going to get the Nadia Komenich of your books. I guess that's Yeah, we really are. Because when we get there, we're not going to be outdated. That's Good true. storytelling is never outdated. I went back and read, after all these years, a 25th anniversary copy of Esquire that I keep. And it talks about New York City through the life of seven different individuals. And the one is a chauffeur who has a chauffeur. One is a masseuse who has keys to important people's apartments and homes, <laughs> you know, who's that trusted. Right. Uh, it goes on and on, but it's so beautifully handled. And what Gaitalese did was he took seven people in a city of seven million people and made that city intimate. He gave us their lives representing our lives. That's it. That's cool. You know, if we can do that inside the covers of a book, then, wow, then we've gotten to that 10 out of 10 mark. And and our bar keeps rising every year. There are some amazing storytelling out there. What would a 10 book look like? If, what, if, if you opened it up and it, and it was from 
Bruce Waters and Mike Taylor High. Notice I use both of us. What would that book have in it? What would it be? Well, for one thing, it would it would have a theme that is simple and conversational, and maybe realistic is is the best word. My concern with theme, particularly, is we strive so much to hit that perfect theme, when in fact, I've seen this particular year more staffs come closer than any other year to hitting the mark. They keep it very simple. Yep. It's almost a conversation between uh, a couple of people, and it's short, it's abbreviated, it's, it's just right on when it comes to um, verbiage. Mm -hmm. And we're not trying to overload it. We're not trying to to use third-degree words and language. Instead, the staffs that, to me, are working out great theme, whether it's a one-word concept or multi-word phrase, it doesn't make any difference. Communicate. Is it communicating with the average reader, particularly that scan reader, who gives you seven seconds to get into a piece of content. Wow. I like that. There are some books that really did a great job this year. Um, David Graves at St. Thomas. I mean, the story of the flood and how his school was ruined, but yet they, they just nailed it with not only the theme phrase, but their opening copy, it made me want to continue into that book, which is a book I always love to read. But um, they did an awesome job under horrible circumstances. That's right. You know, imagine having a school closed, literally closed down for a month or almost a month, and then separated by a 10-mile stretch in metropolitan Houston between the high school portion and the lower middle school portion, it was a very difficult year for them. You know, and they came up with not just another day, not just another year. It was a great way of putting, they started off, you know, just another day, but it was certainly not just another day. They were able to take that theme concept and retrofit it after two days worth of flooding. Right. Wow. Now, staff sometimes get it all the way up to theme, copy, division pages, whatever you want to call them. And then they start to slide backwards with things like academic coverage and even sports and clubs coverage. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it seems like, yay, you're going, you're telling me these great stories. We've got great character. We're starting to see the settings, all the things that a good book has. But then they slide backwards in those areas. My concern, I've been asked a gazillion times, okay, what's the surefire fire way to win national awards? Uh-huh. How do you get there? How do you get that overarching, top-of-the-top award? And I, I don't know that there's really a silver bullet. But if there was, that silver bullet would 
in my estimate, be an issue of pacing. Pacing the content through the book so that there's something lively, something, several interest points all the way through from each of the sections to the reference areas in the rear of the book. What happens is that the dynamics and the, the staff right. ebb and flow. You know, it's a typical school year, and by the time you get to the end of it, you're probably not very keen on the theme anymore. Nope. <laughs> you know, the notion of generating really premium content and storytelling, uh, not so important anymore. And it's, to me, success is sticking to the guns in totality. It's that never give up. What are we going to do in the index when we're dog tired and all we really want to do is flow the, the list of names, you know, 3,600 names into columns, linear columns, and hit print or submit. Right. You know, I, that's hard. And I don't know that there's anything more than the energizing quality of an editorial team that can make a difference there. I don't know that it's any specific storytelling. I don't know that it's any specific gimmick. We have lots of opportunity to read and find great conversational topics. If we can just keep that conversational tone going throughout sections like index, throughout sections like novel approaches to the placement of group pictures with ancillary or auxiliary or additional feature storytelling uh, in a reference section, anything that will make it come alive. I don't know that it has anything to do with color. Mm -mm. You know, splashy color isn't necessary uh, to make pacing work. I think what really makes pacing work is the notion that there's energy on every double page spread. Wow. And that has to do with the overall quality of the editorial team. You know, you want um, a group that is inspired. It's as simple as that. And I don't know that it's Pinterest inspired I'm talking about. In fact, it would be anything but that. It's the notion about, you know, potential, you know, connections. It's thinking about the newest possible connections you can make so that there is no perfect idea. But, whoa, what kind of, how can we generate unique ideas? What kind of forum can we create inside the four walls of our staff room so that maybe once a week, we go on a graphic safari. We go to Barnes & Noble or Kroger or Walmart or whatever it is, and we just sort of scour the magazine racks. And we really flip through and we really look at some of the storytelling that's going on in the professional press. And everybody contributes. There's no filter. Say out loud what you see in these magazines that might or might not work. Get somebody to be the recorder and take the notes of things that you're seeing. And then all of a sudden, 
it's that kind of optimism, that kind of creativity, that kind of objectivity to look for ways to make an idea that you find somewhere else work inside the covers of a yearbook, right? Uh, it, it bothers me when students are shut down who have ideas because, well, we've never done it in the yearbook that way. Well, I believe there are going to be some ideas that will exist out there that haven't been done in the yearbook. We just need to be more open and not so, um, I call it super dance about what's included inside a yearbook. Oh. Fluidity. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, let's get a little, let's be fluid about what we can include. Yeah. And then let's figure out, can that increase the pacing inside the covers of this yearbook? And I believe it can. And I do think that's the kind of experience your reader is looking for. It's a tactile one. Yeah, the fonts matter, the colors matter, the graphics are important. Design is critical in communication. But it's the words, it's the content, it's the effects that you're using. And is the user experience powerful? Once we get to the end of a book, do you close it and say, oh, I wish I had been a part of this staff. Why did my counselor insist that I join a journalism staff? That, to me, would be the greatest compliment you could have. And, and that is absolutely true. There are books, and I'm going to use two that, that did two things um, that I thought was unique. And I've seen it done before. But the McKinney High School book and uh, Plant High School book did some coverage pages or des they designed spreads that went the opposite of what you would do with a book. They went from top to bottom if you hold the book. Um, oh, how would I say it? Like, calendar. Yeah, a calendar yep. effect. A calendar they, effect. Yeah, they did such a great job with it. I, I wasn't so sure when I looked at it on the computer in both of those schools that that coverage was going to work there. But when you hold the book in your hand and you actually turn it, it's kind of fun. And it, and it gives us a new story. Sure it does. And it does matter in the whole scheme of pacing yeah. a yearbook. I went back to the 1974 book that I advised and inserted twice in the scheme of that yearbook were two calendar spreads. <laughs> and one of them was on track and field and a, a, at least an 8 by 10, maybe a 9 by 12 photograph, dominant center of visual impact photo, right. was run poster-like mm -hmm. on that calendar page. And that was in 1974. So I, I, I really, I love to see ingenuity and I like to see somebody take a risk. And both of those publications did it and did it very well. They, they did. But they also looked at what was obvious in the school community. I want to say both of them did features that were just obvious and beautifully clever, like the covers on your uh, laptop computers. They had an entire double-page spread right. showing the decorative covers of a computer. Well, what's more high school than that? 
<laughs> yeah. You know, we, we say, casually, we'll say things like, that is just so high school. Right. You know, a, a double page spread on those computer covers. Perfect. That is just so high school. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like you said, it's that pacing. It's the pacing of not only the book, but of your year. When the EICs can, can wake up in February and say, okay, I've got an idea that will work in this book. Let's apply it at this point. And they're not afraid to do that. They're, they're not afraid that, oh, we've got all these templates that we, we might change something. Uh, I think that, like you're saying, is what makes a book exciting. It's getting the staffs um, attuned to the notion that the editors are not going to dismiss an idea just because they can't visualize how it would work. You know, I, I think that's important for us to, to remind editors, don't be dismissive. You know, encourage everyone to contribute and say it loud. You know, I kind of like the optimism some people have for looking for ways to make ideas work. And when an editor or an editor-in-chief team will say, okay, we expect you to say it loud. We expect you to come up with ideas and to fight for the ideas you think would make this book special and different and put your stamp on this particular 2019 volume or whatever the volume's going to be. It's a great way to generate ideas and to encourage ideas. And it's, you know, to me, the uniqueness of a yearbook is all important. It's a different way of taking a a look at a traditional device, a traditional publication, and making it come alive, completely personalized to the reader. One of the things I, I most appreciate is the attention that people are giving to getting students in that volume, whether it's in a quotable quote or a photograph or a mention of some sort, in addition to their portrait in the classes section. Right. You know, it's no wonder um, a student might or might not want to buy a book if there's a question that they may or may not be in it. They want to be included. They yearn for that. They're high school students. They're young people mm -hmm. who want to be a part of this particular pu bound publication. And so it's obligatory for staff to staffs, I think, to make certain that they get as many students in there as they can without crowding. And what a monumental task when you have a student body of over 2,500. Or 3,500. Or 3,500, yeah. Some of the schools oh. in Texas and Florida, California, have yeah. they're like small towns. Uh, but they get them in, and those books that are in those towns, they're alive. They're just... I'm looking at the Shawnee Mission Northwest book. I mean, that book is huge. It's 500 pages. And yet they sell a lot of books because the students want to be in there and are in there. So my, my next question to you is photography. What are you seeing in the world of uh, photography in all these books? 
I think that's about the most exciting venue. Um, Wired Magazine and magazines like Wired have been experimenting with color, filters, um, lenses, uh, apertures. It's, it's an interesting portraiture angle, particularly that I'm seeing used in Wired. And now I'm seeing yearbook staffs pick up on the notion that a portrait doesn't mean a flat forward head and shoulder shot with an individual looking directly in the lens of the camera. With the wall in the background. <laughs> exactly right. With concrete blocks out of the ears of the person being pictured. It's a very interesting look that we're seeing in publications. And this particular year, I've seen it in dozens of yearbooks. They're say, I'm, I'm looking at profiles of individuals in those uh, quotable quote series. I'm looking at black and white photography and the emergence or re-emergence, if you will, of black and white. Mm -hmm. uh, having been in this industry a long time, I can tell you that it was an upcharge to have color in sure it was. 44 years ago. Now, I think staffs are recognizing that contrast and the fact that black and white photography is so poignant and almost personal, they're using more and more of that as a complement to the color. They're not going exclusively black and white, but the fact that there's some tension, some synergy created between both the black and white and the color inside those pages makes an awful lot of difference. Maybe that's part of the silver bullet needed to win those national awards. It's thinking out of the box with regard to your photographic input. Uh, I, I saw a couple of books, one that um, came from the California coast, and they actually shredded a photograph diagonally and put it back together in almost a collage oh. as a representation for an individual uh, whose story whose feature was being uh, showcased in the book. Mm -hmm. And it was such a clever way to draw attention to the different facets of that individual. And in this case, his particular volunteerism, his efforts at volunteering in the community were threefold. And they had a three-partite photograph to, as an emblematic or a metaphor. It was beautifully done. You know, students are very, very creative. And now we have the tools digitally for them to do the, as powerful um, a production, a publication, a design component as any professional magazine. Wow, that's awesome. And, and so many times with our planning, we keep our creative students like locked in a box instead of saying, take this and run with it. And I think that's exactly what, what you're saying needs to happen. Just run with this. Let's see where you go. Photography, graphics, all of that. Well, we finally have discovered that templating works if you're a newcomer to yearbook industry and you're learning the ropes because we want to... Uh, encourage people to understand mastery of yearbook production, but templating doesn't work 
Mm-mm. when we're overusing templates inside the boundaries of those double page spreads and they're becoming hackneyed to the average reader. When the average reader figures out that a certain pattern has been used not once, but 16 times <laughs> in, uh, within 32 pages, right. then it's a problem. Right. It's, it's, it, it becomes monotonous and boring. And there goes your storytelling right there out the window because now I'm just, and you said seven seconds uh, to, to, to capture my attention. Well, that pattern is going to even knock it down even lower. And I'm just going to turn the page. And I don't want you to turn the page. I want you to read my story. I want you to look sure. at the photographs. Sure. I want you to see my work. Now, there are a lot of people that are afraid of getting a critique. Um, new advisors are afraid of getting a critique. And I try to tell them all the time, listen, get the critique. It may come back harsh. It may come back as a surprise. But unless you get the critique, you're going to have no idea where you stand. What are your thoughts about uh, the critique service and ex- from the organizations, be it from a state or a national service? I, uh, I think feedback is good. And I think feedback is good regardless of whether you're getting it from your state association, your regional one, or your national one. This is hard because you put so much uh, investment of time into the production of a good book. And everyone works hard to produce a book. There's no one that goes into it and is half-hearted about it. Nope. And therefore, your lifeblood is part and parcel of that process. It is difficult to read a critique or a review uh, objectively of something like that. Right. But it it is important, nonetheless, to hear what other people have to say. It's a curiosity factor for me. I, I'm curious. I don't operate in a vacuum. I welcome hearing feedback on just about anything that I'm involved in. Mm-hmm. And advisors are well served to take the document, the review, the online uh, review or paper review that they get and just let it, I, I say read it, put it aside, pick it back up and read it again, fresh, after, and let it, let it, oh, by the wayside for a couple of days. Your perspective will change every time you read it. And don't be afraid to let students necessarily read it. There are advisors who believe they will keep that private from the staff. But you grow when you are able to, what, analyze Mm -hmm. the kind of commentary that you're reading. And I think a student... uh, I don't know that there are any students' worldview um, that are great, so great, that they couldn't appreciate being able to read a review and analyze it with some depth of understanding. Also recognizing, and, and this is the part to edit in, recognize that that review is one person's opinion of a product 
at a certain point in time, it may be a good day for that reviewer. It may not be a good day for that. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And that does enter in to the whole complexion, complexity of, of reviewing a publication. I, I refuse to do it in one setting. I normally give four to six hours of publication when I'm reviewing it. And I'll begin the process and then I'll step away for a time, come back to the process and take a second and a third look at what I've written, what I've analyzed out of fairness, because I, I just don't think a first glance is necessarily the most <laughs> revealing review, the most accurate review, the most fair review. And yet my mindset drives the way I review. And I come from a very liberal um, mindset with regard to risk-taking and bending of rules and so forth. I revel in people taking chances. And I have a, a, a leeway that I give a staff for things like that. Uh, on certain areas of the review, however, I'm pretty adamant that they follow the rules and the fundamentals of good journalism. Sure. Capital so, writing. Yeah, absolutely. And good and use of grammar and spell check and all of that. Right. It's all of that is critical. Good headline packaging. My concern, though, is that we not get so um, functionally fixed that we're unable to see left and right in terms of a different design approach or a different photographic approach or even a different storytelling approach. Um, that That's just my thinking, though, on reviews. I think overall they serve a, a purpose. If the review seems unfair or demeaning or incorrect, then the person looking at that review, the person who... Um, wanted it, can send that review back and have it re-critiqued. Yeah. And that's something that people aren't aware of necessarily. Not that I'm encouraging if you get a bad review, you automatically send it back. No, but, but there are some instances. If there are some, yes, where you might feel they're patently unfair in their review. And you have that alternative. Reviews are expensive processes. And as a consumer... You have that right. Is there one piece of advice that you would like to give staffs this year to sign off with? Well, I, I think a yearbook is at its best when the staff shares stories, anecdotals about students and their life inside and outside the four walls of school. The best student journalists are those curious types who are willing to go above and beyond the time parameters of a classroom period to get to the greatest possible uh, piece of content to go inside the covers of that book. The more a student staffer is involved in other activities, 
I believe the better the staff as a whole performs and the better the book is. Mm -hmm. So if I were an advisor looking at a collection of people wanting to work on a yearbook staff, uh, one of the questions I'd ask is, and how many other activities are you really involved in? I found over the years that the students who are so functionally fixed on yearbook to the exclusion of other activities don't necessarily bring the right character to the process, the right stamina to the process, the right communication skills to the process. And I really like the notion that lots of voices mm -hmm. are part of the conversation and the production of a yearbook. That's awesome. That is awesome. And, and I want to thank you, Mr. Bruce Watterson, the yearbook whisperer for bringing some of your great knowledge to us today. Oh, happy to do it. Happy to be a part of this. I've loved it for 44 years and I continue to find it just the most gratifying kind of um, involvement. I appreciate the fact that you've asked me to be part of this. What an honor. What an uh, honor. Thank you. And I can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks at the uh, Wallsworth Elite Weekends, where you're going to bring all this greatness back to our staffs. You're very kind. Thank you. Be well. You've been listening to Ask Mike, a part of the Wallsworth Yearbooks Podcast Network. Do you have a question you'd like to ask Mike? Send it to podcasts at wallsworth.com or use the hashtag AskMike on Twitter. Let us know what you think. Rate, subscribe, or leave a review. We'd love to hear your opinion. Thank you for listening to Ask Mike. <laughs>